This episode of Hockey Press Pass is presented in part by the Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntington Village. Unplug your game. Buy board games. Play board games. Food and drink. Fun. And friends. Kelly Rudy in your 677 NHL games with the Islanders, Kings, and Sharks. Who were the three best shooters you faced? Oh, boy. Hit me with a tough one early, huh? I'm going to have to go early in my Islander days because we played Philadelphia so often. Uh, I'm going to say Tim Kerr would be at the top of the list. Uh, He was uh, just an incredible shooter, a power play specialist. He was a big man, and he just simply overpowered you with uh, his shot. Then when I went to L.A., I'm going to go with Pavel Bure. Hated playing against Pavel. He was one of the game's greatest goal scorers of all time. And because we uh, played Vancouver so often, they were in our same uh, division that it seemed like he had three breakaways a game on me. And then lastly, I'm going to say, and I first played against Brett Hull when I was with the Islanders, but uh, then again back in the Western Conference when I was traded to L.A., just overwhelming power, right? The the Brett Hall shot was, uh, and by the way, there's a, a bad memory I have of that. Chris, is, if you want to look on YouTube, there's a shot that Brett Hall gets me right in the groin, and I ended up having to be taken out of the game. So, yeah, those are the three that come to mind. <laughs> he left his mark. Amazing yeah. choices. Three different kinds of players, big man, fast man, right. uh, and then the sniper and Hull. You're listening to Hockey Press Pass, an insider's look at the media presented by Instat Hockey. Our guest is Kelly Re- uh, Kelly Rudy, the outstanding and flair-tastic goaltender who's been a mainstay on the iconic Hockey Night in Canada and Sportsnet and works as a commentator on Calgary Flames telecast. Now, Kelly, my friend, when you first were so gracious and kind enough to do this, the first question that came to my mind to hit you with is, you're a gentleman. You're known as one of the game's true gentlemen. Was it difficult early on, or maybe even still to this day, to be critical in your role as a broadcaster? Oh, man, that is such a great question. And yes, it just doesn't come naturally for me. Um, It's something that uh, I have to really be feel passionate about um, the person that I'm critiquing to, to really go hard at them. So I think I personally believe, I I don't know if I'm accurate or if everybody agrees, but I kind of think that I might be known as one of the kinder broadcasts out there. I mean, I I don't really feel the need always to be critical in every game. I, my way of being a, what I think is a fair broadcaster is pointing out all the positives that uh, the players are making, even when there's a, a fairly simple mistake that I recognize that leads to a goal. I'll typically lean towards the positives that created the goal scoring chance or the goal, as opposed to just automatically going to the negative. Now I do that for sure on hockey night in Canada. I can be a little bit more negative naturally simply because it's a different audience. Right. And, uh, but I'm, I'm still, that's not really in my nature as you know, Chris, and it's something that uh, early on, Boy, when I was uh, I was a part-time broadcaster when I was finishing off my four last years in the National Hockey League, and so that was really difficult at that point to try and say something. I remember I said something about Matthew Barnaby at one point, and and the first time we faced each other next season, I thought he was going to tear my head off. Luckily, he, he may not have watched it or nobody told him, so he didn't do anything to me. But I was, was uh, thinking to myself, how is this going to go? In these last few years, Kelly, say in recent years, do you every once in a while hear from somebody, you know, a phone call or a text? And is it important for you to, you know, hash it out and at least explain where you're coming from? Uh, On occasion, you get uh, for sure, or you hear sort of through the grapevine that somebody's not very happy with you. I said something about a a general manager about three years ago, and uh, he didn't call me, but I had had been told by other people that he was furious with me. But that is kind of like the nature of the business, right? You know, you're hired to tell people what you really think about certain situations. And so at at times you have to go out on a limb and you have to... uh, I guess sort of be brave enough in today's world anyways to take a little bit of criticism because 
You, I, in fact, I just had a great conversation with a former teammate of mine that watches me. Uh, he used to be a broadcaster, and he said, uh, keep up the great work. By the way, I don't agree with everything you say, but, and you know, I said, that's perfectly fine, right? I mean, that's how it's going to go. The only thing I, I will say, Chris, that sometimes um, if I say something about a player and then I get feedback, the player comes up to me and we, we have to talk it over, typically – that player is getting second or third hand information, right? So it's not exactly how I said it on the air. And maybe a family member or a friend will sort of give their sort of take on what I said. And so it's kind of like, okay, well, let me explain myself. It's not, that's not exactly how I said it. And so maybe they, they, uh, took it as more criticism than it was meant to be. And so you have to do that. By the way, I always, uh, for a Flames game too, and it's harder when I'm doing uh, the opposition because at the end of the game, we might be hopping on a plane and I might not have a chance, but I will go up to a certain player and apologize for saying, hey, listen, I criticize you. And uh, when I looked at it again, in fact, it wasn't your mistake, it was somebody else's. And so I apologize for that. And and so for that reason, I think I've created a pretty good rapport with the the Flames players anyways. Oh, that's a great idea. It's true class on your part, and I'm sure they appreciate it. So you started doing some TV in your final four seasons, probably last two with the Kings, last two with the Sharks. Uh, yep. did, prior to that, so early Kings days, were, did you, I mean, you're focused so much on the hockey, but did you think that this TV thing might be something for you? 100%. Oh, okay. And so it goes back, yeah, it goes back to my childhood, Chris. So I was uh, really, really shy uh, my entire life. And uh, I had one good quality, I think, though, and that was I was trying to be a really good listener. So I was trying to take in everything going on around me, but I didn't offer my opinion very often. And so early on in my career with the Islanders, uh, as you can expect, they just won their fourth Stanley cup in a row. And so there's plenty of media around and maybe the, the media got a little bit tired of interviewing Trachi and bossy and Smith and, and all the great players on that team. And, uh, so when I started to get a little bit more playing time, uh, you were, I was interviewed often. Right. And, uh, I always thought that, man, this is really going to help me. And then I thought to myself, you know what I should really do? Try and really concentrate on giving what I thought were thoughtful answers, uh, not throwing anybody under the bus, but just saying a little bit more than most of the players that were interviewed uh, in the games that I was watching. And, and so I was also benefited by the fact, Chris, that I used to like watching a lot of hockey. And the reason I say that, because it might sound unusual to the people listening, that not all players watch, right? Some guys, and there's no right or wrong answer. I, I, I played with Wayne Gretzky for eight years. He watched tons of hockey. I did an interview with Nick Lidstrom on Hockey Night in Canada one time, and I asked him, and he said, no, I, I don't watch any hockey. I get enough just from playing. And so my thing was I like to watch because I used it a lot for research sort of figure out what uh, the strengths and weaknesses of certain players and shooters and their power plays and so on. But also I was just as interested in the intermissions and watching the interviews. And so that was kind of where I had the mindset that, you know what, I'm going to really work at this. And hopefully one day when my career is coming to an end, people may have noticed and they may, uh, you know, invite me on their TV show. That's a fascinating answer because I, I, I think you're, you're a rarity. I had no idea it goes back to the Islanders and now it adds up and it makes sense and you had the time to be analytical and goaltenders are analytical and you're a thoughtful guy and you were the go-to guy uh, on those teams, uh, especially in, in the later years and in, in the later later 80s. Let's talk about when you started full-time broadcasting so you weren't a player anymore. In those early years, um, were there certain aspects of the craft of analysis that you felt like you, you, you struggled with, or that you kept on trying to get better at, whether it be you know, reviewing a replay, analyzing a goal, answering something about management, anything like that? Yeah, for sure. I think you struggle, or at least I felt like I struggled for at least two years and maybe a little bit more to really show my personality. And, and I had been told it would take most likely about two years for your personality to start to come out or shine. Um, and I, I just think also, Chris, at working at hockey night, I don't think that 
early on, you get quite enough reps, right? So I was only working one, one day a week, right? Because hockey night back in those days, uh, it's only Saturday nights, unless it's the playoffs, right? And so you're, you're not getting, like I would have, I think it might have been a tad easier had I worked, say, a Saturday, then start again another game on Monday, then you have a Thursday game, then back on Saturday. And so you, you start to get a bit of a rhythm. So I think that sort of not stalled my career because that's certainly incorrect, but it, it made it a little bit easier to get maybe in a groove. And then because you're, you're going to make plenty of mistakes and I have no problem with that. You know, I, I let in plenty of goals in my career too. So that was easy to overcome, but you know, you just want to get back at it so badly after you've had what you think is a bad broadcast. And so I think early on, I, I just wish I had more reps, but that certainly it was impossible with being on Hockey Night in Canada. Where is it after all this time that you feel you do best that you're most comfortable at? What mm, you what you I, bring to the table that you say, right. you know what, that's one thing that I feel you know I'm, I'm confident I'm very good at. My word. To the point, uh, I think I I make my points very clear. I don't think the person back home would be watching a segment and, and of mine and go. Well, I didn't really understand what Kelly's trying to tell me right there. I, I think that uh, I really feel like I want to make it fairly simple to understand the game. Uh, I, I try not to uh, use too many hockey, um, I don't know, words, that, you know, like for four check or something. I don't say F1, F2, F3, those sorts of things. I don't get too technical because I truly believe that most fans – that they just want to watch a game. And, and some people I bet have no idea what that even means. I don't use nicknames because I find that that's really confusing for people. Um, and so I just think my way of doing broadcasting has worked for me because I just, I think i make it very easy for somebody to understand what I'm trying to talk about. Very good. I'm going to ask you to represent the goaltending fraternity with this next question. And by the way, I should point out, you know, I understand goalies are often broadcasters, but almost just about every other goalie who was at the Islanders in my time there, you, McLennan, Healy, yep. um, on, on and on, Kevin Weeks have become broadcasters, which is good when you're trying to do a podcast, too, I will say so. And I'm grateful to all of you for how nice you were to me then and are and continue to be, especially you, Kelly. Represent the goaltenders. Don't you think that we, and I don't mean just me and fans on social media, but also analysts, also writers, and maybe even head coaches, put too much on goaltenders? Like the like the goal t goaltender is the most important position probably in all of sports. But yeah. that said, especially come playoff times, it just seems to me, you know, I'll, I just hear so much about, you know, Var oh, Varlamov. Well, he stopped 40 of 42. And I know right. Smitty had this thing about making the big save to win 6-5 if that you had to be there then. But it's too much sometimes. Or, or the goaltenders use as easy targets. I think they're used as easy targets, but I also think if you're going to play that position, you have to just accept that. And you have to understand that's part of that position. Um, you know, at, at times throughout my career and uh, in my broadcasting days, when I hear things like uh, a, a teammate may say something like, oh, I don't have confidence in my goaltender. And so, you know, my game has suffered. And, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, if, if I thought that way as a goalie, you know, you, you can't, you'd never have any success, right? If, if I ever said, okay, I've lost confidence in my centerman and he's probably going to lose a draw in my own end. And then I'm not sharp because of that, you know, lost ability by me. It, it just, that whole mindset just doesn't work. Right. Everybody has to uh, have full confidence in each other. And it doesn't matter if somebody's struggling or not, you have to expect that they're going to do their job. But having said that, Chris, that's a long answer for a very simple question. Uh, I just think that goalies have to accept it and there's no other way. It's not ever going to change. That's great advice, Kelly. And can we add to this that, and I'm not trying to put your words in your mouth, but it, yeah. it, I would think it would be like nails on the chalkboard to, to, for a coach to say we could have used the save there. Like, right? Like, what the? 
you know? Oh, I, I totally agree, especially when you think of that position. There's so much that goes into it, right? Like, it's not just going out on the ice and trying to do your best and stop as many pucks as possible. There's so much that goes into it mentally and all the work you do behind the scenes. Like, that's what I was talking about, how often I watch so many hockey games. I still do as a broadcaster to be as well-informed as humanly possible. And it didn't happen often, but on occasion, uh, when I was still playing, we'd come into the dressing room after the first period and somebody would ask a question like, who's playing goal for the other team? And I'm thinking to myself, we are so doomed in this game. <laughs> if that player has put in such little effort and little research into uh, knowing that fact. Now, in today's world, of course, it couldn't happen because they have all sorts of different meetings and video and, you know, they go over the strengths and weaknesses of every goaltender. But back then, there was very little information and, and film shared in that regard. Yeah, yeah. You were traded once in the NHL, I believe, because signed with the yep. Sharks, but traded from Islanders to, King, to the Kings. Uh, but in, in 1988, uh, there wasn't Twitter and there wasn't this kind of scoopologist thing. All these guys, you know, mostly uh, guys who are, uh, I think, all try to be respectful in their approach, most of them, but the, 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 the top level ones. And I would certainly lead with Elliot Friedman, who you share, often share mm -hmm. studio time with. But as a player who was traded, as a player who knows what that's like to have your family or your wife uh, move, um, do you have an uh, opinion on, or do you ever advise them on, on you know how a player might feel to have their name being bandied about in a rumor well before the trade deadline? Is that something that's ever kind of like you sat there and go, oh man, do we got to go there? Oh, one hundred percent. And you know, I, I I thought like I've been doing this for a lot of years now, broadcasting. And uh, I thought I was going to get fired one uh, trade deadline day. And I think it's about five or six years ago. And I was home in Calgary. Back then, I, for some reason, I didn't go that year to Toronto for the trade deadline show. I've been invited virtually every other year. And maybe we had a Flames game that night. It doesn't matter. And uh, so uh, I'm driving to the rink and I'm listening to the sports radio and they're talking about all the potential trades and all the trades that had happened. And they're saying it so gleefully, right? And I'm thinking, I'm getting madder and madder the closer I'm getting to the Saddle Dome. And, and I'm thinking, these broadcasters are doing their best, but this is not a joyous day for a lot of players. They're not looking forward to this day and the potentially moving and then you know the very next day or even later on that same day they're on a plane and they're leaving their wife and maybe children behind and it's not a it's not a great day and not many players are looking forward to it there's maybe two or three guys in the league you think that what are they're looking for a change but most of the guys it's not a it's not a great uh, day and so I get to the rink and it's, I'm about to do my hit and I hear all the banter and they're on the set and they're jovial and they're sharing names about potential trades. And then it's my turn. And, and I just went off and I said something like, I don't get it. Why is everybody so happy? It, it was maybe my worst day in hockey and, and I felt betrayed and I went all through my experiences and, and then I'm thinking to myself, Oh, Kelly, you have gone way too far. And so the hit is over. I get in my truck, I'm driving home, and I thought, oh, boy, I, I'm just going to call my boss and find out. I, I got to find out if I'm getting uh, fired later today. So I call my boss, it was Scott Moore at the time, and he goes, no, we thought it was great. Just don't do it very often. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a completely human reaction, and, and, and I'm right? sure that, that, that that's totally fair for you to do, and we respect everything they do, and I, again – Elliot and and certainly Bob McKenzie and others and Frank, I, I think they do work to be respectful. Some of the stuff that's on Twitter and you know that other people do, uh, not so much, but the people at the top end do. Um, the skill and fitness of NHL players is greater than ever. I don't think there's any yeah. argument with that. Um, and the game is good. Uh, and I, I, but I always feel like it, we can work to make it better. Ray Farrar talked about this on an earlier episode of this show. Is there something about the NHL or the game or a couple of things that really stand out that you wish was better? 
Okay, I'll say the one thing I wish, but I know it's not ever coming back. And so I'm over it. Like I, I never complain about it, uh, but I, I wish there was a little bit more hitting in the game. Mm-hmm. I think that we sort of miss a little bit of that physical aspect. Now I understand the reasons why there's less hitting and the game is faster than ever, as you mentioned, Chris. So that adds to it. Uh, but I think that to a certain degree, that's one element that I always thought was kind of underrated the physical play and the sort of like the I don't know, intimidation factor, you know, I think that could affect the outcome of a game or a playoff series. Uh, but now you could also say intimidation can be speed. It can be a power play. It can be a, a dumb, a number of different things. So it, not to say that intimidation has left the game. It's just maybe in a different form. Interesting. Uh, a player, uh, who's currently in the league. I'm giving you a hypothetical situation. We get to April or May, and his team's not in the playoffs, and ESPN is going to have all these games all over the place in the United States, and they call on this player, like P.K. Subban was uh, last mm-hmm. year, to be mm-hmm. a, a color commentator on a game. Let's talk about a color commentator as opposed to a studio uh, thing. Uh, and then he calls you, and he says, Kelly, they got me doing this game tomorrow night. I've sure. never even been on TV before, except as a subject, as a the person mm-hmm. being interviewed. Uh, and I'm doing this game with whoever, uh, as my play-by-play person. Uh, what's your advice to them, your top-line well, advice to them? I can come up with that answer very quickly, Chris, because it happened to me. So when I was still a player, as you said, or we've discussed for the, my last four years, uh, I'd do it at, if my team lost in the playoffs or if we didn't make the playoffs and I was doing it on the biggest show hockey show in the entire world hockey night in Canada and so the first person I called was John Davidson and uh, at that time he was a color analyst for the Rangers highly respected right and and I asked him what I should be looking at in terms of picking out clips and things and he said number one thing Kelly tell them why something happened not what just happened, but why. And so I wrote the word why, why, why three times in front of me. And I kept that, uh, boy, I bet I did it for years just to make sure that when I was analyzing a game, I wasn't telling the people what happened. I was saying, telling them why that chance happened or why that goal went in or why the penalty was called. And so that would be the the advice I would give a a player that uh, has a broadcast opportunity. Is there anything that you would like to say? You know, you have the opportunity. But you're before fans all the time on the biggest stage in hockey. You're certainly the most iconic one. But for the fans watching this now, you and your den or living room, grand, it's like a grandchild's uh, set maybe behind you. Um, yeah, we have two you know, grandchildren now. <laughs> what, would you like to, what would you like to say to the fans who have been, who've watched you, uh, and, you know, as a broadcaster and as a player for these last four plus, plus decades? Oh, boy. Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for having me in your living room. Uh, it's a real honor. It's a privilege. And I, I totally accept that, um, that uh, I don't take the job for granted. Maybe that's one thing I'd like people to know that uh, I certainly put in all the work that I possibly can. And I like it. Like, to me, it doesn't seem like I'm putting in a hard day's work. As an example, before the pandemic, Chris, uh, I was super busy, as you mentioned, doing Flames broadcasts, and then every single Saturday, I'm in Toronto. So Friday, I'm flying in from whatever city I'm in, whether it's in Calgary or Dallas or L.A. or Denver or whatever city. And so Friday night, I might be tired, but I might go out to a, a restaurant and typically I'd go to a place where they had hockey on that night, but I would also have my iPad and maybe my, my cell phone with me watching two other games. And so uh, the point I'm trying to make is that I really enjoy it. It's, uh, uh, it's just something I've always really wanted to do. And I'm so thankful that I'm still around. Everyone who has worked with you these last 20 years, uh, most, I know some are close friends. Um, they, Everyone to a T says Kelly Rudy is first class. Uh, even some of the more controversial commentators or the ones who maybe made the job uh, aggravating at times or caused controversy. And that speaks volumes to you. So my question to you is a personal question. Uh, and it, it, ultimately, the credit goes to the person. But 
is this go back to family? Your parents, where, where, and and we'll talk about it in the Islander segment too about about my ex- little ex- brief experience sure. with you a long time yeah. ago. But w- where did you get your friendliness from? Yeah, you're right. It's from my uh, mom and dad, and also my brother. Uh, but I really think it starts with my mom and dad. Uh, t- just terrific people. Um, I, in fact, here's a compliment to my dad. He passed away coming up six years ago, but up until the very end, and it's kind of funny, I had never heard him say a swear word in his life. And so, but you know, he was pretty sick at the end and it was kind of funny to see him say the odd word, but my mom and dad were just very, very kind people. And, uh, so for me, that's what I learned. Right. So I take no credit for that. Um, I will say this, uh, during my playing days, uh, I could certainly be criticized for, you know, being over the top with uh, my passion. And I I used to say I played with hatred, right? Like I I really, truly hated the other team. Now that that went away the moment the game ended. um, But that's the state of mind I had to be in to play. I, I just couldn't pretend that they were friends or that even guys that I knew. And uh, the longer you play, the more you, you're around different guys and you get to know them. But for those 60 minutes or plus, if there's overtime, I, I played in a state of hatred. And I, I'm sure I did some things that, uh, well, I know I did some things that I regret on the ice, but that's just in the heat of the moment. Oh, and to be clear, anybody who heard me on this show uh, ask that last question, uh, Kelly Rudy was an absolutely fierce uh, competitor. And uh, so he'll always have that. Uh, you're listening to the Hockey Press Pass podcast. We'll be back with Kelly after this break uh, with some thoughts on his time on the Islanders and a few other topics. Hey guys, it's Pat and I want to tell you about Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntington Village on Long Island's North Shore. A huge selection of hobby and family strategy board games for sale. From old favorites to the hottest new releases. A library of over 400 board games for open play every day. Our staff help you pick out games and show you how to play. Find your crowd at one of our magic The Gathering, Pokemon, or Dungeons & Dragons events for adults and kids, including our D&D after-school program, Offered both virtually and in person. A full-service cafe, food and drink, coffee and desserts, beer and wine, fun and friends. Located at 307 Main Street in Huntington Village, go to MainStreetBoardGameCafe.com for more information. Main Street Board Game Cafe. Unplug your game. Hey everybody, it's Chris. I want to take a moment to thank and tell you all about Instat Hockey. I'm a subscriber and think of the world of their product. They were the first major company to jump on board as a presenting sponsor of my podcast. I can't thank them enough. Instat Hockey offers the largest statistical data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Their work is trusted at every level of the game by coaches, scouts, players, and of course, members of the media, like the people we spotlight each week on press pass. The Instat Hockey platform saves the user hours of time watching game film as team and player statistics are pre-cut into separate playlists, including players' individual shifts. All video clips can be edited, shared, and downloaded by the user. I've used their platform and so have many of the coaches I've worked with, so check them out. Visit instatsport.com hockey today for more info. instatsport.com hockey. This is Hockey Press Pass, presented by Instat Hockey. We're back with Kelly Rudy. I'd like to spend some time talking about your time with the Islanders. Um, you get drafted by the Islanders. You join a team that's won four state straight Stanley Cups. You're on the drive for five. You go something like seven and two. Um, on, on one hand, that would seem to feel like an impossible situation for young players. But what was that experience like for you? Magical. So I want to go back uh, to when I was drafted, though, in uh, the summer of 1980. Uh, So back then, Chris, not every player that was drafted gets invited to training camp. And so I was pleasantly surprised to know that in September I was going to go join the Islanders for training camp, not expecting to play any of the preseason games. Right. Just thinking that I'm going to go there for a week or 10 days or two weeks and just participate in practice and get a feel for the National Hockey League. Much to my surprise, a couple days, excuse me, before the first preseason game, which was going to be played in Chicago, 
the, the lineup is posted on the door in the dressing room and I see my name and I'm, I'm going to be playing in that game with Roly Melanson. And so the next day we, we get on the plane and back then you flew commercial, right? So I'm on the plane in a middle seat and this is no accident. I, I knew that. And the players to my left and my right were Mike Bossy and Brian Trotche. Can you imagine that experience for, what was I, 18 or 19 years old, sitting in between two of the best players on the planet? And I doubt I said anything. Uh, I just kept looking over and on, just thinking, my gosh, my mom and dad, they won't believe this. And so that was my first experience. And I played that next night. We lost. I let in, I played the first two periods. I let in five and 36 shots. Not bad, actually. Um, and and then the entire team took me out to a pizza joint in uh, Chicago. And I just, I couldn't believe how gracious those guys were. Now, fast forward to 83 when I made the team for good. Uh, it was just what a what a university go to, right? You're you're around the best guys in the league. Once again, I didn't say much, but I'm watching how all these guys prepare, and they all prepare a little bit differently, right? And I'm taking little things from certain guys um, and sort of trying it out, see if if I you know maybe want to be a little more talkative. Some guys are quite talkative. Dennis Potvin was certainly a guy, a very vocal leader. And so I sort of gravitated towards that, listening to Dennis all the time and his advice. Uh, Mike Bossy did things sort of on his own a little bit more, which is perfectly fine. He knew to get the best out of himself. He was sort of, he was jovial and, and uh, but he, he is also a little bit introverted to a certain degree from what I kind of remember anyways. And that's perfectly fine because he knew the importance of his role on the team and, and how to score goals. Billy, I learned so much from, he was uh, very quiet before a game, but he and I were great friends my entire five and a half years there. And uh, oftentimes the night before a game, Billy and I would go out for dinner together. Of course, I'm talking about Billy Smith and uh, just, I take away some of those experiences and think back, was I ever the luckiest guy in the world? And that, I think that's one of the reasons why I played 15 years because I, I watched those guys and I learned how to prepare and make sure that I tried to be as consistent as possible every game. I remember you saying that about Smitty, and, and, but I think to the outsiders, including me who weren't there in 83 or to the average fan, knowing that Smitty has this legendarily, you know, prickly personality on game days and this intense competitor and how he was against the competition, the opponent, I think we would think that uh, that you wouldn't be a natural, that that wouldn't have been such a great friendship. Can you go into a little more detail on that? Because I, that's a, a really great thing. Well, first of all, he and I shared so many great laughs at those dinners, right? And uh, uh, I just think that one of the things that I, I really liked being the partner with Billy because uh, he taught me a lot about uh, things, skills I was going to need later on in my career. And for an example, there's no secret I was trying to take his job, right? That's what everybody's feeling is when you're, when you're making your way up, you're always trying to take somebody else's job. And that's uh, just the nature of the business. And so what I learned from Billy, once on occasion, when I'd start to get maybe a couple games in a row, Billy didn't like it, right? And so he'd barge into, I didn't know it at first, but he'd go barge into Al's office and stick up for himself and then finally when I kind of figured it out and then later on when we had Terry Simpson I kind of figured out what Billy was doing and so I learned uh to barge right in with him I go right in and I'd say something like hey that's not right like I burned my ice time or whatever the conversation might be right and so that was a, a, a tool that he taught me that I used for the rest of my career so in LA for instance I had a ton of guys coming up trying to take my job and uh, I was always of the mindset, you can have this job once you earn it, because I'm not giving it to you. Billy Smith never gave me his job. I had to earn it. Took me forever, it seems. But uh, that is a that's that's really really healthy. And so Billy and I were terrific friends. Like we we played tennis together. Um, like I said, dinners on the road. We did so many things together. 
and there was no animosity between uh, my wanting to take his job and and Billy fighting for his job. What's the first thing that comes to mind uh, when I mention Al Arbor? It was uh, like a second father to me. Like I just mentioned to you, I had a terrific dad, but there was something about Al that I, I really liked. He would tell a lot of stories or relate what you were going through as a player uh, to things that maybe your mom and dad would go through. So as an example, Chris, we played uh, in Madison Square Garden one game. We lost. Al didn't like our work ethic. So we bust back to uh, Long Island. We're in the parking lot at Nassau Coliseum. And uh, he stands up at the front of the bus and says, I didn't like your work ethic today. So tomorrow, instead of coming in around nine for practice, it might be a 1030 practice and you'll be, you know, you're on the ice for an hour and a half and you get home by one or two or something. You're going to have a good long work day just like your mom and dad put in every day. And so be prepared to be at the rink at seven in the morning and you might not get back home until about six. And so you'll have meetings, uh, you'll have practice, uh, maybe ride the bike, you'll do all these sorts of things. Now, Al didn't usually follow through, but the message was very clear and it, it really resonated with me. Yeah, like I've got a pretty darn good job here. I don't spend a lot of time at the office and, you know, I look at my mom and dad, I mean, my mom and dad, hardworking people, right? My dad worked for Pepsi fixing pot machines and my mom sold uh, shoes in a children's clothing store in Edmonton. So uh, that's talking, you're talking about very humble beginnings, right? And so that's what really got me with Al. Plus every single night, even if Al got mad at me that day, I always felt when I put my head on the, my pillow at night, Al cared about me. And that, that's a really cool thing. That's a great lesson. Uh, you know, when I had Ray Ferraro on the show, uh, we had a big, great, serious interview. And then we had a moment where the fan in me, and this, you know, in this case was an employee, employee and, a, and a fan, where I started to ask him about the 93 playoffs. While, while you're with the Kings, stopping all the pucks and helping lead them and Wayne Gretzky and everybody else and Luke to the uh, Stanley Cup Finals, Ray is is doing playing the role of Gretzky for my Islanders, scoring four goals and all that, and kind of became this like Chris Farley thing on Saturday Night Live that bit where he'd be remember when. So this is this is this is that part of the show, Kelly Rudy. Do you remember that Easter egg? So what do you think of when you look back now these years later on? in the Easter epic game seven win against Washington, 73 saves ended at two in the morning. Is this a matter of being just completely dialed in? How did it go for you? <laughs> yes, I was completely dialed in. Uh, now it's easy to say that because it's what, 34, 35 mm -hmm. years later. Uh, but I can tell you, I would have to say that was a very unlikely victory. And I'll tell you why. So we were down in that series 3-1. Uh, we were able to fight back into it. But going into game seven in Landover, we were without Dennis Potvin, Mike Bossy, Brent Sutter, and Brian Trotche had a separated left shoulder. I mean, talk about the odds are against you. And so um, you never think that way as an athlete. Like I, I never went into that game seven thinking, oh boy, we have no chance or slim chances. But the reality is when you look at it, you know, I think most people going into that game from the outside would have said Capitals, home ice, you know, likely going to be the victors here. But that just tells you why we all love sports. And I think that here's my recollection of the game. And I think I'll be fairly accurate. I think the Capitals had the better of the play for the first three periods, maybe four. And in the fifth and six periods and in the seventh, I think the Islanders, our team, we're way better. Like we've got really, really the better scoring chances. Bob Mason made some ridiculous saves uh, in overtime uh, to keep his team in it because I could really feel the momentum building for our team. Now, like I said, the Capitals had a really strong first three periods and probably the first overtime. Uh, and it was just, I was so mad at myself, you know, so that turned out to be a pretty memorable game for all of us. But I remember being so mad at myself because in the last, I think, 30 seconds of the first period, I gave up what I thought was a, a lousy goal 
uh, to Mike Gartner. It was a terrible rebound I'd given up. And I also thought at the moment, like, oh boy, that could be a costly goal, right? In the last minute of the period, not a good goal. And I hope that that doesn't give Washington momentum. Now, Pat Flatley scored uh, a pretty shaky goal on Bob. And then uh, they went up 2-1. And then Brian Chachi scored with about four or five minutes to go on a, on a weak backhand. But that was just such an amazing experience to go through. After you were traded, I referenced this on Twitter about a year ago. I also wrote about it a long time ago. Uh, I I would think it might be a blur for you, so I would not expect you to remember, but I will never forget that you went into the office and thanked a lot of the people, if not the entire staff, uh, and said goodbye. Uh, but you hinted at this before. What was your reaction to the trade from the Islanders to Los Angeles? Oh, I was furious. I felt betrayed. And now, so that, that registers even more to me because that, that even despite that, you did that. And I did not... I don't think I knew that, or I don't remember that you were furious. So please continue. Oh yeah, I was crushed. I I was hopeful I was going to be one of those guys that uh, stayed in one organization his entire career and uh, win Stanley Cups. And so when I was traded five and a half years into my time on Long Island, it was uh, devastating. I took me a long time to get over it, and I must say, I was like a lot of guys. Keep in mind, this was you know my mindset and I talked about hatred and how I, you know, that was uh, how I sort of conducted myself in that terms of that environment. I wanted the Islanders to lose every single game for 25 years after that or something. I, I don't know if there was a, a term on it, but I, I was just so hurt and, and I never really quite got over it whenever I ran into uh, Bill Torrey again. I, you know, I had a few conversations with, uh, with him, but I was just, it was never, it was never something that I really put closure to. You know, I had to accept it and I was super excited after I, I got to LA and had a chance to play at Gretzky for eight years. And I mean, my life turned out to be fabulous, but at the time I really felt betrayed. I, I learned that just literally just this moment. I didn't realize it was that deep. Just briefly, did uh, Tory, Mr. Tory, ever hint at it or explain why? I mean, we had a goalie back in Fitzpatrick and a defenseman being two prospects. You were still young. Contract related? Anything? Not contract related. In fact, I think I just signed a contract uh, maybe a year before. Huh. Uh, I think a four-year deal. So there is no animosity in that. There's nothing... Uh, it, Bill did explain to me, um, but the timeline was unusual. So we played at home. I think it was a Tuesday. Uh, I found out from John Davidson again. He called my lawyer. I was having my afternoon nap saying I was going to get traded. I go play the game. Greg Gilbert and I carpooled. I told him I'm getting traded. Greg's like, no, nobody's heard anything. And and I strangely, I get to the rink and nobody tells me anything and and. And so I play, and it might have been my worst game ever as an Islander, and there are plenty of those, but that was one of them by far. So I go into the dressing room after the game, and Bill or Al Arbor comes up to me and says, Kelly, you're not going to Buffalo because we're playing the next night in Buffalo. We're going to rest you here at home. So I knew I was get, getting traded, of course, and I had a sleepless night. Uh, Mr. Torrey calls me about 7 in the morning, says, come down, I have to talk to you. So I drive down to Nassau Coliseum. And he goes, Kelly, we've traded you to L.A. And then at that point, Chris, it was a blur. He, he, I remember him telling me the reasons why. and I don't re remember one of them uh, other than it was a real honor, I have to tell you, to learn that Wayne Gretzky was really behind it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Wayne and I were friends and teammates from the 87 Canada Cup. Uh, and so Wayne was pushing for this. And so it was kind of cool to know that through my disappointment there was a light because somebody else wanted you right all right well now i'm really ticked off of all these years later about that about that trade because it does not add up and even though the Islanders, <laughs> even though the Islanders won a few games after that be assured uh, the kings uh won that trade and a blowout uh kelly lastly you're you and your family uh your wife donna daughter caitlin your entire family have been amazing advocates uh, for the importance of, of mental health. You utilize this big platform that you've had that you've developed and you've used it for good 
uh, fighting for what's right. Um, can you share us with us a little bit more about why you are on this mission? Yeah, for sure, Chris. By the way, it's the, the greatest work and most proud I am about my career. Uh, I had a good hockey career, good broadcasting career, but the work I'm most proud of is in the field of mental health, not only myself, but my family. We have been outspoken. Caitlin is 28 now, but she was diagnosed when she was 12 with anxiety and OCD. And, you know, the work she put in, how hard she had to work, right? And uh, I'm wearing a t-shirt that sort of describes her journey. And this is a clothing company, her and her husband Hayden have come up with it. It's called More Good Days Clothing. Uh, dot com. But the genesis is after four years of therapy and tons of hard work, she came to us, my mom or my wife and I one day and said, we're, we're having or I'm having more good days than bad. And so that was the start of, you know, I thought something very profound that she said, right? Like, that's what we're all trying to have more good days. Um, and when she decided to make her story well-known in public in 2013. I was so proud of her and she went national and uh, she talked about her struggles and her, her struggles are really about uh, disease and dying and just the strength for her to talk about it. And, and you know, there's been highs and lows, of course, and setbacks and that's what mental health is. And, and I started thinking about my own journey and I thought, oh my gosh, you know what? I didn't know it at the time. I thought it was maybe a crisis of confidence, but back in 92, 93, it happens the year we went to the Stanley Cup in LA. That summer heading into that year, I started to have some thoughts. Now, I truly believe, Chris, they were rational thoughts because the average career, as you know, is about three and a half years, right? So I was entering my 10th year in the league and I started to have these thoughts in the summer, like, how much longer can you play? Can you stay at this level? And they were in the background, but they weren't all that loud until about late November. And those those thoughts became louder and louder and louder. And many years later, through the help of Caitlin and, and uh, mental health specialists, I learned about the loop. So I didn't know how to get rid of the loop. I didn't know how to break the loop. That, those thoughts just went round and round and round. They grew louder. They became more, more uh, negative thoughts a lot of irrational thoughts, but I was able to get the help that I needed from Barry Melrose. He uh, introduced me to Tony Robbins. And uh, if you know Tony, mm -hmm. man, it, it just, it changed my life, right? So I was able to work one-on-one -on -one with Tony for a while. I got out of that bad place. Uh, we ended up, as I said, going to the Stanley Cup finals. I played five more years in the league and I, I'm, I'm always forever indebted to Barry for making that connection because he knew that it wasn't, something physical I just had I, I had mental health problems at that time and then the reason I've been sharing my story lately is because in 2019 the summer of 2019 so many years later right and I had been pretty much free of any of those thoughts thoughts started to come back about my broadcasting how much longer can you do this and uh, can you stay at that same level and then my thoughts became irrational like it's live television right and I was trying to put this pressure on myself, I'd be perfect all the time. And that's impossible. It's uh, perfection is nothing you want to chase because it's, there's no gratitude in perfection. And, you know, being real, that's something I, I want to chase. And, uh, and so then when I really struggled that year, I thought, okay, I better go get the help I need. I waited a little bit too long, but I talked to my family and now I, I get the help that I need. And I, I haven't shared much this summer because I'm trying to take a break pretty much from social media just to stay well. And, uh, but I, I do share that, yeah, I see somebody and I'm not ashamed of it. I think I saw somebody for 15 weeks in a row during the last hockey season. Uh, and I had a setback. And so, um, you know, it's just something you have to stay on top of. Well, I, I mean, I guess the, the, the follow-up question I have to ask is, you know, how are you? Oh, I'm doing really well. Uh, I'm looking forward to traveling again. Uh, that's the reason why I didn't travel this past uh, hockey season. I had the ability to go to, to Toronto and broadcast, and I wasn't uh, in a place to do that. But I am doing really well. Uh, walks are important for me, Chris, to sort of clear my mind. And, yeah, I, I've got 
such great support from my family. Oh, that's great to hear. Uh, lastly, you know, this impacts every family, whether we or they know it or not. Um, it certainly has impacted my family as well. And, but we know that on social media and we, we ignore the anonymous garbage and the trolls, but there's always some level of skepticism or criticism or, um, what would you say to the people who are almost like in denial about the seriousness of this topic? Oh, wow. I, I only hesitate because I, I just can't imagine, um, you know, the denial or not recognizing the seriousness of it, because, you know, this is uh, something that uh, we're going to continue to talk about. We're going to talk a lot about it. Uh, we're going to get louder. I keep saying with people with mental health issues, um, it's not it's not for everybody to talk or go public about it. That's not my point. I personally believe that uh, we have somebody really close to us that has mental health issues and they don't share their story. But the important thing is they're getting the help they need. And that is the key that uh, and and I'm just so happy or proud or heartwarming in, in my occupation. Now, the hockey world has really jumped on board. Uh, people get the support. Teams have uh, psychologists. They have people to help people in the field of mental health. And and uh, I just think this is such a, we want it to be a safe place for, for people. And I don't really care much about the, the naysayers of people that don't believe the importance of one's mental health. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for uh, being part of the show, talking NHL, talking all Islanders, even some wounds with that trade. And now I'm feeling it. Uh, but most importantly, everything that you and Donna and Caitlin and your family have done uh, to advocate for the importance of mental health. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, Kelly, I've known you a long time and you've just been class and you were again today. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it, Chris. Nice Thanks. chatting with you again. Thanks, Kelly. All righty. A really touching, awesome, and, and candid interview from Kelly Rudy. And that will conclude this week's episode of Hockey Press Pass. We hope you guys enjoyed it as always. Please check out our website at hockeypresspass.com and consider rating us and subscribing at Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Stitcher. Email us anytime at presspasspodcast at gmail.com. For requests for guests, opinions on the show, or any questions you guys might have. The executive producer of Hockey Press Pass is Danny Ryland Carney. The show is produced and engineered by yours truly, Pat Boyle, and the marketing director is Sally Kinsman. Special thanks to our sponsors, Instat Hockey and Main Street Board Game Cafe. And of course, again, huge thanks to the guest, Kelly Rudy. And of course, for you guys for listening to and supporting this podcast. We'll see you next week with another episode of Hockey Press Pass.